The Seasonals Podcast is back. This is the first episode of 2021. We'll be bringing you an episode every Monday at noon Eastern Standard Time. This particular episode was recorded in May of 2020, so if a reference to time seems a little out of sync, that's why. If you want to get a hold of us at The Seasonals, message us on Facebook or Instagram. Welcome back and enjoy. I didn't learn this until after all this, but... uh... Western diamondback rattlesnakes can strike at about 90 miles per hour. And uh, 78-year-old American men strike at less than 90 miles per hour. This is the Seasonals Podcast, a show where we talk to people living the seasonal lifestyle and take an in-depth look at the decision points they've encountered along the way. I'm here with Josh Goldstein, cousin of a uh, recent guest, Isaac Nimitz. How are you today, Josh? I'm doing well, Joey. Thanks for having me. Great. And you're somewhere in Alaska. Where, where in Alaska are you today? Uh, today, I am based in Anchorage. Oh, very cool. Big city. Oh, yeah. The biggest. Josh, I want to ask you what you're doing now. I know it's not seasonal work. We're going to get into you know, a bunch of different topics today, but let me know what you're doing now, dig into it and tell me all about it. So I'm a behavioral health clinician. I'm a therapist for Alaska native youth, uh, adolescents, uh, mostly teenagers from 13 to 18 years old uh, in a residential treatment program in Anchorage. So it's uh, a place where Alaska native kids from all the rural villages or the the cities around Alaska come to get mental health or substance use treatment or both. Usually they stay for about a year. We are in in progress on making a wilderness therapy program out of this residential therapy program. So it's an exciting time, although what with the virus stuff, a lot of those plans have been put on hold temporarily. I'm trying to imagine what sort of it looks like. It's these kids stay for, you know, up to a year or basically long-term stay. What's sort of the, the grounds or your, your working space look like on a normal day? Um, I work out of this building. It's uh, essentially a group home. It's a, it's a large house basically with uh, three different uh, wings that they call villages and each village is about you know seven kids the program has a total of I think 30 kids right now they sleep in this building I come into the building that they uh, live in and have an office in there where we do therapy family therapy individual therapy and group therapy And then the building also has a school attached to it so that they can get an education while they're there. There's a gym attached to it and a weight room, a kitchen, so they eat their meals there. Basically, they just live their whole teenage high school experience there for a year. And when they're not in the building, uh, they're usually on an outing with us, which is where 
the staff at this program just take folks out between three to five times a week, uh, hiking, fishing, mountain biking, dip netting, rock climbing, skiing, all kinds of wonderful activities uh, based in recreation therapy. So what is a normal sort of shift for you look like in the actual building? Depends on the day. Uh, It can be a pretty chaotic place to work sometimes. On an ordinary Monday, I I go into the office uh, on a roughly nine to five type of schedule. I meet with all the all the kids that I'm working with, all the teens, and we, you know, have individual therapy sessions. Uh, I meet with their families, and we do family therapy sessions, and then we have uh, groups group therapy twice a week uh, with with a group of kids. Um, so that's like the indoor work that's done. It's kind of it's it's called milieu therapy, meaning like the environment that they're in is part of the therapy. So like there's uh, a whole team of staff who are very intentional in their approach with these teens who are there to support them in practicing coping skills, uh, practicing, you know, being sober, uh, practicing anger management skills, independent living skills, social skills, working on catching up in their academics, whatever, whatever challenges they've been experiencing in their lives, we're there to help support them through it while they're in that environment. So that's, that's a typical day. And then every Friday, every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, they're usually on an outing. So on a day like that, I'll come into the office, I'll check my emails, and uh, then we'll head out to the nearest mountains or the nearest body of water and spend the day playing outside, basically. And then we'll kind of come back to the building at the end of the day and decompress about it, debrief, talk about it, what went well, what was really challenging. As it turns out, there's like a lot of good therapeutic work that happens during outdoor activities, recreation. There's a lot of great research about like adventure therapy, recreation therapy, wilderness therapy. And uh, we're kind of dipping our toes into that world when we take these young teens out for these outings. Very cool. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of communication is happening and well-intentioned communication coming in and out and talking to them about sort of what's going on. Can you describe sort of one of your recent outings? Sure. Uh, The cross-country ski season is just about done here. It's pretty much summer, but in some of the higher elevation passes and ranges of the mountains, there's still some snow. So we recently went, like two weeks ago, we went cross-country skiing in a place called Hatcher's Pass, which is just a beautiful winter wonderland well into the summer season, about an hour north of Anchorage. Uh, We loaded up a 16-passenger van with a bunch of kids and a bunch of skis. Uh, We went up there. We skied all day. Uh, Some of these kids, you know, are Alaskan born and raised, and they've been on cross-country skis uh, before and are pretty great at it. Others are from villages where they never had access to skis, and this is their first time. I'm relatively new to the skiing world, cross-country especially, and skate skiing. So we went up to this place, Hatcher's Pass, and we uh, skate skied around an abandoned gold mine, honed our skills, yeah, dealt with communication on the way, dealt with impulse control, anger management, dealing with frustration and coping, 
stress and anxiety. We were, you know, addressing all these things while playing outside. Because when you're outside, there's a lot of natural consequences. You don't really need to create too many inorganic consequences like punishments like you have in school or wherever else at home. Uh, for these kids, you know, if they decide, screw it, I don't care if I bring my water bottle, then like they're going to experience dehydration as a natural consequence. Or if they decide, you know, I'm not going to bring the right shoes for this activity, then they're going to get like cold, wet feet. And it, it's just a lot easier to connect the dots of cause and effect as a young person when the consequences are natural rather than imposed punishment. So that's one of the great benefits of these outdoor activities that we do with these kids is they're very therapeutic very immediately. Yeah, I tried snowboarding for the first time in February. It would have been nice to have someone there to talk to me about anger management and impulse <laughs> control on my last run. Yeah. I was doing so well, feeling confident. And then the last run, I just, everything fell apart. I was pretty upset. But <laughs> yeah, these, those sports especially are, are pretty frustrating for beginners. It was, it was hard for me on these skis. I actually ended up breaking a binding and I had to postpone my way out of this area we were in. And it, it took a while. It took a lot of work. And it was definitely frustrating, definitely tiring and educational. So you went to, went to school for this, I'm guessing, recently, right? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> I went to Columbia School of Social Work. I graduated in 2018 with a, a degree in clinical social work. The idea was to get into wilderness therapy as a therapist. It was funny because Columbia School of Social Work is a very uh, well-regarded social work program in the United States. However, when I got there... They had never heard of wilderness therapy. It's, it's in the heart of Manhattan. It's in the Upper West Side. So I, I would ask my professors like, hey, what are your thoughts on wilderness therapy? I'm really interested in getting into it. And that's, that's why I'm here at school, like to, to become a wilderness therapist. And they would just look at me like, what the hell is that? I've never heard of that. It seems like it's a, a growing field in the last 20 years in the United States, especially out in like Colorado, Utah, North Carolina, Idaho, those areas. But I'm noticing on the East Coast, in those big cities, in places where they, they probably would benefit from wilderness therapy for lack of access to wilderness, they've never heard of it. So there's a big untapped market there. Yeah, I'm sure you were probably as surprised as they were that they had never heard of it. Yeah, it was, a, it was definitely a learning experience for the folks that had never heard of it and for me because I realized, oh wow, this is, this is huge out West. It hasn't caught on much at all you know, on the East Coast, it seems like. So did wanting to get into wilderness therapy sort of change your experience in that degree at all compared to, say, your peers that were there for maybe more traditional reasons? No, I'd say I adjusted based on what was available at the school. So I kind of put the wilderness concepts on the back burner and focused on the more traditional clinical route. I also did a lot of my classwork around program development, program evaluation, and program design with the intention in mind that, you know, I'd, I'd like to be a clinical therapist. I'd like to you know, be, a, be somebody that folks can talk to in any setting, but eventually I'd like to make my own wilderness therapy program or be involved in one. Yeah. And that's sort of why, uh, or at least part of the reason why you're in Anchorage doing what you're doing now, huh? Yes. Yeah. That was, uh, very fortuitous. 
I did. I, I came up to Alaska as a last hurrah before graduate school. I knew I was going to grad school in New York City and figured, wow, that's a that's a real concrete jungle. I'm going to need to get some fresh air in me before I take this journey. I'm not a city guy, so it was going to be a challenge for me. So yeah, I came up to Alaska to get some fresh air. I went up as a sea kayaking guide, ended up staying for three summers working seasonally in between finishing my degree. And then when I finished my degree, yeah, I was I was convinced that I was going to return to Alaska. I love the scenery, I love the landscape and the access to the wilderness and the people and uh, the amount of opportunity to to start some kind of wilderness therapy program up here. So you said you came to Alaska or how did your sort of seasonal experience begin? My seasonal experience began when I moved out to Albuquerque, New Mexico. I, I grew up in Philadelphia. I lived out in Pittsburgh during college. Then after college, I wanted to see some, some big, beautiful places, uh, some landscapes that I hadn't been familiar with. So I headed out west, arrived in New Mexico, and pretty, pretty randomly and by chance decided to stay in New Mexico. It was just pretty. We were driving, uh, my partner and I, my partner at the time, we were driving through uh, Albuquerque during sunset and the way the sun was hitting the mountains was very beautiful. We decided to spend the night and I ended up spending the next two and a half years there. When I was in Albuquerque, one day I was at a restaurant and I saw a framed article, a newspaper article on the wall. And it was about this guy in the community in Albuquerque known as Snake Man. Snake Man had this article written about him. He was famous for being a rattlesnake wrangler uh, who would bring rattlesnakes to movie sets in Albuquerque. He would catch them in the wilds and a lot of films are shot in New Mexico because they have really good tax breaks for film companies. Most Westerns have been shot in New Mexico and most Westerns include a scene with a rattlesnake. It's just a given. So Snake Man brings the snakes to the movie set they shoot the uh, scene and then he takes the snake off the set, kills it and skins it. And he makes it into like hats and belts and like boots. And then he comes back to the movie set and he sells that stuff to the actors and to the people on the set. So the article that I was reading at this restaurant when I first moved to Albuquerque, it was talking about Snake Man. I was saying he sold hats and belts and boots to like Tommy Lee Jones and Johnny Depp and uh, Clint Eastwood, all these people who have shot Western films in New Mexico at different points. And I'm reading this article and the 10 year old reptile lover in me is just freaking out thinking like, wow, this old man is really living out one of my like greatest fantasies as a young person. Cause I was really into snakes and lizards when I was a kid. I'm just thinking to myself, like, how did this guy get into this line of work? This is such an inter interesting career choice. So anyway, a couple months go by and I am at a folk art exhibit in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And there's a huge taxidermied uh, diamondback rattlesnake behind some glass on display. And I'm looking at it and there's a business card next to the snake and it says courtesy of Snake Man. And it's got his phone number on it. And uh, I, I noticed it's the same guy that's in the article. So I call the phone number uh, on a whim and 
this guy answers the phone and when he answers the phone he says rattle rattle <laughs> and i was like okay oh, snake man is this snake man and he's saying yeah <laughs> who's this and i was explaining you know you don't know me but i've I've read a little bit about you and you're one of the most interesting people in the world to me right now. I'm wondering if I could join you for a day at your job, uh, just to see how that, what that's like. It's the most interesting thing. And Snake Man was pretty hesitant and reluctant. He was like, nah, I mean, I don't take people with me. It's kind of a liability. And so I was trying to negotiate with him and I was saying, you know, I'll, I'll draft like a liability waiver. I'll pay for gas. I'll stay out of your way. Just tell me what you need and I'll, I'll do it. But I really want to see what you do and how you do it. And so he agreed. He said, you know, you don't have to sign a waiver, but uh, stay out of my way and pay for gas. And so uh, about a week later, uh, Snake Man came to my house to pick me up. And he was driving this old Ford Bronco with all these snake stickers and decals all over it. Uh, there's a rattlesnake rattle hanging from his rearview mirror, and uh, he gets out of the Bronco, and he's got the hat, the belt, the boots. He's got a revolver on his hip. He looks like an old cowboy made out of snakes, and he's old. <laughs> he's much older than I expected, like in his late 70s. I get in the car, we drive around, and we start looking for snakes in uh, a place called Socorro, New Mexico. And as we're driving around, he's telling me about himself. He's an interesting guy. He's a, a Vietnam veteran and uh, a very anti-authority type of person, I'd say. He's got very strong opinions, and he's, he's his own man. He's a very independent guy. He's telling me all about himself. We're driving around, but we're not finding any snakes. And uh, we've been you know, looking for several hours at this point, and he's becoming kind of apologetic about it and embarrassed I can tell he's, he's saying you know I'm sorry this is my job I do this for a living I'm, I'm amazed that we're not finding any snakes I really thought we'd find some and I'm telling snake man you know like I'm having a blast you know you're an interesting guy you tell interesting stories uh, I don't mind driving around with you it's okay if we don't find snakes I knew it wasn't guaranteed and he says yeah well I think I could guarantee you a snake uh, I'll take you again uh, I asked him, all right, but how could you guarantee me a snake next time we go? And he explains, well, uh, about 10 years ago, I went to this snake den. I found a whole bunch of snakes there, and I, I pulled one out. I tried to get it in a bag, but I tripped on a rock, and I fell, and the snake fell, and it landed on my knee. And he was explaining that he wears these snake-proof chaps. They're like high-end Kevlar chaps that go up to his knees that are puncture proof. So the snake landed on his knee and it bit. And when it bit, it had one fang go into the Kevlar chaps and the other fang went into his kneecap. And he thinks because of that, he only got half the envenomation that he would ordinarily get from a snake bite. And he believes that because of that, he was able to walk back to help and get to a hospital and survive it and uh as a result of this episode of like the snake biting him with one fang uh he's got these one fang decals all over his car because of this you know episode he had with a snake like 10 years ago where it bit him and it nearly killed him and he said uh he, he tells me you know i haven't been back to that snake den since i got bit 10 years ago we can go there i guarantee you there's a snake there and so I think to myself, okay, like, let's, let's do that. So 
couple days later, he picks me up at my house. He's driving his, you know, one fang Bronco. Instead of going to Socorro, New Mexico, we go to another part of New Mexico, uh, about an hour outside of Albuquerque. We pull over on the side of the road in the middle of the desert, hop a fence, uh, walk about two, two miles back to this hill, this little mesa. Sure enough, there's this big rock with a crack in the rock. And we look inside and you can see that there are about 10 rattlesnakes on there, just kind of cuddling uh, and hanging out. So I'm excited. You know, the 10 year old snake lover in me is like, wow, wild rattlesnakes. This is amazing. This is the best day ever. Snake man immediately gets to work. He pulls out all his tongs and hooks and bags and lays down on his stomach so that he can reach these snakes in the crack and just starts reaching with these tools, trying to pull out the snakes. And he gives me a, a set of tongs and he says, you here, get to work, get me a snake. And uh, I'm not a hunter, I've never hunted in my life. And uh, frankly, I, I wanted to see these snakes, but I wanted to see them alive, but I didn't want to be rude. I told him that I'd stay out of the way and that I'd help, so I helped. So we were laying on our stomachs, uh, reaching for these snakes that want nothing to do with us. So they're going further back into the crack. Uh, it's very hard to reach them. We spend like two hours reaching for these snakes, just kind of baking in the desert sun. And uh, finally, I'm feeling dehydrated and I'm looking at Snake Man and I'm thinking like, this guy, I need to like watch out for this guy's health. Like, yeah, I, I think we should go back, like we should call it. So I tell him like, hey, I'm feeling kind of ready to go back. Like, I don't need to catch a snake. If you were just trying to catch a snake to like show me that you can, like, I don't need to see that. And he was like, no, I was gonna catch a snake because that's my livelihood and you're gonna help me. But he's, he's doing that thing again where he's like kind of apologetic and embarrassed. He's like, you know, I really thought we'd get one. I don't think we're gonna get one of these. I'm sorry, uh, I do this for a living. And I'm telling him again, like, this is, the, this is a very exciting day for me. I had a really good time. We don't need to catch a snake, let's go home. And so we start walking back to the car and as we're walking, uh, he's walking in front of me and there's a rock on our right. It's about waist height on both of us. And there's a snake basking on that rock, a Western, Western diamondback rattlesnake. And as we walk past it, neither of us sees it. And it sees us and it springs up in a coil. And when it springs up, it's tall. It's uh, about chest or neck height and striking distance from either of us. So my instinct, having never been this close to a wild rattlesnake, is don't move. Uh, so I freeze. And snake man's instinct very, very quick reaction. He grabs one of his toms and lunges for the snake. And the snake sees movement, so it lunges for him. I didn't learn this until after all this, but uh, Western diamondback rattlesnakes can strike at about 90 miles per hour. And 78-year-old uh, American men strike at less than 90 miles per hour, probably closer to 20 or something. Um, so when he goes for the snake, he gets it with the tongues, but he gets it kind of low in the body and the snake wraps around and bites him in the hand. And this time, instead of getting him with one fang, it gets him with both fangs and I watch it happen. And he doesn't, I didn't, I didn't know this until after the fact, but Western diamondback rattlesnake venom is a hemotoxin. It's essentially a blood thinner. Snake Man didn't tell me this, but he has a heart condition and he is currently taking prescription blood thinner medications already. Uh, so when he gets bit, a couple things happen very quickly. 
when he gets bit, uh, he's a Vietnam veteran, so he yells out, I'm hit, and he falls over. And as he falls over, I see his hand, which is spurting blood because of all these blood thinner effects. It is just, it's like Monty Python. It's like spraying Kill Bill style blood. And so when he falls over, my first instinct is I grab my cell phone out of my pocket and I start dialing 911 because we're pretty far from the road. Snake Man yells at me and says, get the snake. And uh, I almost laughed at him. I like, I, I just explained like, hey man, we're in a tight situation right now. You're bleeding a lot. I think we have to prioritize getting you out of here. Oh no. And he yells at me again, you know, catch the fucking snake. And uh, like I said, I grew up on the East Coast and where I grew up in Philly, there are only certain people who have guns and they're an authority no matter what, whether it's a cop or a robber, you listen to what they say when they're telling you to do something. So this kind of like upbringing kicks in when Snake Man, he's not pointing the gun at me, but he's got a gun and he's yelling at me. So I just listen. <laughs> and uh, the East Coaster in me just listens. And I grab his tongs. I go for the snake. I get it high enough in the body that it won't you know, wrap around. And I put it in his canvas bag, which has like a wooden handle on it. And I close the bag and hold it away from me. And the snake is freaking out in this bag. It's rattling and it's hissing and uh, snake man's bleeding. And so now I call 911. And when I call, the sheriff picks up and I explain to him, hey, I think we need like a helicopter. Uh, my buddy just got bit. He's bleeding a lot. He's kind of older and uh, we're far from help help. And so I hear the sheriff talking to his deputy on the other end of the line for a second. And then he gets back on the phone with me and he says, is this the same asshole that got bit in the same location like 10 years ago? And, uh, <laughs> and I say to the sheriff, like, well, he calls himself snake man. And the sheriff, I hear him call out to his deputy over the phone, like, yeah, same guy. And so I'm thinking like, uh-oh, these guys have a grudge against Snake Man. They're not going to come. And so I ask him, like, are you guys going to bring help? And he says, uh, walk him out to the road and meet us at the road, and we'll be there with an ambulance. And then he says, oh, by the way, I hear a lot of rattling going on. If you're still near that snake, get away from that snake, please. And I was like, okay. And I hung up the phone. <laughs> I get Snake Man to lean on me and wrap one of my shirts around his hand, which has already, like, ballooned into a huge swollen size and uh, is turning colors and he doesn't look good but we walk about two miles out to the road and when we get to the road there's an ambulance and a sheriff car waiting for us which is a relief and uh, as we're walking towards the ambulance the paramedics are coming to help uh, aid snake man meanwhile the sheriff and the paramedics see me with this bag in my hand and the sheriff gives me a look from like a hundred yards away that says like, wow, why did you bring the problem with you? Don't come any closer. I don't want to interact with you. That's how <laughs> I interpreted his look. Uh, he seemed pretty pissed at me. So I just stand off to the side, wait for them to do what they're going to do for Snake Man. And then I hear some commotion in the ambulance. And I look over to see what's happening back there. And Snake Man's giving the paramedics hell because he doesn't want to take his gun off of his hip. And the paramedics are explaining, you can't have a firearm in an ambulance. Just put it down and give it to your friend and we'll treat you. Or 
we cannot treat you and you can keep your gun and you can keep your snake bite in the middle of nowhere. So snake man gives the gun over the paramedics give it to the cop. The cop gives it to me without saying a word. And uh, a couple minutes later, the cop comes over with snake man's car keys and cell phone. And he says, here, meet us at the hospital, call his wife. So I get in the Bronco and I put snake man's gun under the seat. He's got a wooden box that he's uh, created in, in the back of the Bronco, which locks and he can put his snake catches in there. So I throw the whole bag into the trunk, basically into this box. And I call his wife and she hears, you know, she doesn't hear rattle rattle on the other end of the phone. So she's like, where's snake man? And uh, I explain, you know, he got bit again in the same place that he got bit 10 years ago, meet us at the hospital. And she sounds more pissed than anything else. She just sounds like really annoyed that this happened. Of but she meets us at the hospital. We lost him in the system. There's only one class A trauma ward in New Mexico. Uh, so it's a very chaotic emergency room. Uh, so we lost him there and we couldn't find him. Uh, eventually got an update from a doctor that he had been pumped full of anti-venom and was stabilizing and was likely gonna keep his hand, uh, which they were considering amputating. And uh, so I went with Snake Man's wife. We, we went back to their house. Uh, I said, you know, I've got his gun and his car and I've got a cell phone here. I give her the gun and the car keys and the cell phone and I tell her, hey, just so you know, there's a live rattlesnake in the trunk of your car. And she says, oh, okay, just throw it in the freezer. And so <laughs> that's how you preserve the skin of a rattlesnake is you kill it by freezing it. So I put the whole bag in the freezer and I went home and was like, wow, that was an interesting day. And about a week later, I get a call and I hear rattle, rattle. And I was like, oh, snake man, you're live. And he was like, yeah, they say I'm going to keep my hand. Uh, they tell me if I ever get bit like that again, uh, my heart can't take it and I'll probably die on the spot hey, I really like the way you uh, caught that rattlesnake. I was wondering if you want to apprentice me. I'm looking for an apprentice. <laughs> and uh, I, I told Snake Man, you know, there's, there's a younger version of me that would love to pursue this career, but, you know, 50% of the time we went out, someone almost died, so I'm going to have to pass. But <laughs> Snake Man and I remained friends, and we still are friends to this day, and we keep in touch. He still hunts rattlesnakes. And uh, after this, I told this story to one of my coworkers in New Mexico. I was working at a homeless shelter at the time. And this guy who I was talking to about it, he was like, oh, you know what you should do is you should become a wilderness first responder, which means you're, you're basically certified as uh, a little bit less than an EMT if there's no hospital within 50 miles or within two hours of you. And that way, if you want to keep having adventures and playing outside and, you know, making risky choices, you can at least make calculated risky choices that are a little bit safer. And you can be a little bit more prepared for these types of situations. I listened to my coworker and I signed up for this course. It was a National Outdoor Leadership School 30-day backpacking course in Wyoming. And you backpack for 30 days through the mountains while they teach you how to be a woofer or a wilderness first responder. And this was a, a pivotal moment in my life because on this backpacking trip, I, I gained the skill, but I also realized I want to work outside. I want to work in a nonprofit setting where people have like a shared common goal that's pro-social. It's about helping people. It's not about profit. And I want to do it outside. I don't want to be working in an office. So I want to use this woofer. 
And uh, after getting the woofer, I got all these job offers all over the world, basically, through the Knowles employment database. They, they basically just find seasonal gigs all over the place, whether it's through the tourism industry or the wilderness therapy industry uh, or whatever it is. So I uh, applied for a job in Hawaii as a wilderness therapy guide, got the job and moved to Hawaii instantly, worked for about a year as a wilderness therapy guide there. It was a beautiful program, and uh, the only issue I had with it was as a guide, I wasn't seasonal because there aren't really seasons in Hawaii, but as a transient worker, I was working long hours. I was not protected by any like benefits or unions or anything like that, and it was, it was kind of unsustainable in the long term. Like I loved what I was doing at the time, but I thought, you know, like if I want to have a family five, ten years from now, like this is not going to be the way that's going to work for me. So I asked one of the therapists that I worked alongside, like, Hey, how do I, how do I do what you do? Which is like, have a real sustainable career while helping people and playing outside. And the therapist told me, if you want to do it quickly and easily, just go to social work school. You don't even have to take a GRE test. It's a two year degree. You come out on the other side and you are a therapist and you can go work for therapy programs. With that, I was inspired, and uh, one day while in Hawaii in the field, uh, I applied to a couple graduate programs that I thought were really good looking. To my surprise, got accepted. I, I was not a great college student. I, I didn't put all my effort in, but I got accepted to some programs and uh, got a scholarship to one and ended up going, uh, except I knew that if I was going from New Mexico to Hawaii to Manhattan, this was going to be a big, drastic transition. So instead, I uh, went New Mexico, Hawaii, Alaska for a summer, and then I went to graduate school. And then to kind of cleanse the palate and wash off the, the city stress from school every year, I would go back to Alaska in the summers and see kayak guide. That's, that's kind of the long-winded version of how I got into uh, guiding and outdoor work eventually therapy that is a hell of a story a that poor snake but also <laughs> i mean snake man sounds like just being in the truck with him for that long i i can imagine like the times i've hung out with some of my uncles like for a long day and just sitting there and listening and every step of the way you're going where has this person been like what what is going to happen next yeah, he's a really interesting guy. He's, he's a one-of-a-kind fella, and I hope he does find an apprentice because that's a really, uh, it's a really niche market, but somebody's, somebody's I guess, got to do it. I, didn't, I, I forgot to mention this part of the story, but after he got out of the hospital, he did reach out to me to let me know that he had taken the snake that we caught and he had taxidermied it and uh, put it in a glass case over his fireplace as a reminder, uh, you know, this is the snake that bit me. And he took its rattle and he made it into a keychain that he hung from his wife's rearview mirror of her car uh, just to piss her off, uh, just because he knew this would bother her. Yep. Yeah, that sounds like Snake Man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. A couple, couple quick questions to clear this up. So you said you were planning on staying for one night in, I think, Albuquerque, and it turned into two years. Like what what sort of surrounded that decision? And like, what was the, what was the morning after the first night? Like, you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to stay here. 
Yeah, I think I think part of it is just a personality thing for me. I for me, it's it's environment is incredibly important to me. I'd imagine this is the case for many seasonal workers who go to these like beautiful places is like they're seeking out a beautiful place. So I was, you know, coming from Pittsburgh and Philly, which are awesome, awesome cities and wonderful places, but they're not beautiful by most standards of natural beauty. So I started driving out West with a goal in mind to move out to San Francisco without having any understanding of what it would take to move out to San Francisco. I kind of moved out there on a whim. I had a, a very small savings at the time and figured, all right, now's the time. I'm gonna, I'm gonna change things up. So me and my partner at the time, we just started driving west. Uh, we made it to about Amarillo, Texas before we started researching, you know, what is rent like in San Francisco? And then we realized, oh shit, we're, we can't afford a week in San Francisco, let alone a new life. So we started looking around Amarillo, Texas, and we were like, well, we're definitely not staying here. So we kept driving and we kept going west and happened to arrive in Albuquerque at sunset. And at sunset in Albuquerque, this very special thing happens. The sun hits the Sandia mountain range. Sandia is Spanish for watermelon because the mountains, when, when the sun hits them, they turn bright pink, like orangish pink. And it's just beautiful. And so we got there that night and we saw this amazing color on these mountains and thought like, holy crap, where are we? <laughs> We've never really heard about this place. Uh, let's stay the night. And so we rested there the night. In the morning, we got some good food. We looked around at apartments. Rent there in Albuquerque, in New Mexico in general, is like so much lower than the rest of the United States. I forget how reasonable it was at the time in like 2002. 12 or so but it was like 400 bucks a month or something amazing uh with you know a view of the mountains out of the apartment window and uh there were job opportunities there so we just stayed we weren't going to stay in texas we weren't going to make it to california because it was too expensive and albuquerque was different it was new and it had opportunities and beauty so we stayed and it's an amazing adventure destination. I think it's a way underrated tourism state. Everybody just thinks of Breaking Bad, but they have White Sands National Park or National Monument. I'm not sure which it is right now. They have Gila National Wilderness Area, which is like a quarter of the state. They have Hot Springs. They have Taos, Santa Fe. They have Rio Grande Gorge. They just have amazing mountains, amazing deserts, amazing rivers and forests. And just a wonderful place. So I really fell in love with it. Enjoyed staying there. Yeah, it sounds like the sort of the beautiful destination that wasn't planned to sort of the, the Hail Mary plan that you had in the beginning. Yep, it was, it was just where the road took us. When I got there, I initially got a job as an office manage, manager at an accounting firm, which I did for a little while, but realized then that I wasn't going to keep working in an office and I wasn't going to keep working for profit. It just wasn't a good fit for me. It didn't feel good. Nothing about a goal of making money uh, for a company and fluorescent lights was working for me. So that's when I transitioned my career over to the homeless shelter and uh, found Snake Man and found the Wilderness First Responder certification and all that stuff. So up until the point you 
decided you wanted to work outside and in a nonprofit setting, what, what had been your plan or interest in future jobs? So basically what, what could have your path have been? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't really know. I think I was just very lost at that age, like post-college age. I had a degree in psychology, but nothing that I could do with it. You know, to, if you have a degree in psychology, you need to finish that degree. You got to go to graduate school, uh, become a psychologist. It takes years and years. So I left college thinking like, all right, I have basically a half a degree. Uh, who's going to hire me and what for? I really didn't have much direction at all. Felt very fortunate and privileged in that I could, uh, I could experiment with that lack of direction and just on a whim drive across the country and you know, decide to seek out opportunities or seek out new experiences and see what came my way on the road. I recognize that not everybody has that opportunity, but for me, it was an important part of my career trajectory. And I think prior to that, I had no idea what I wanted to do, but it was basically through trial and error that I realized I don't want to work in an office. I, I do want to work with people in a way where I feel like I'm being helpful. It just kind of slowly grew from there uh, based on where these opportunities took, took me. Yeah. You sort of took a chance. You found a, you know, a beautiful place, which is important to you an environment. And, you know, through following that, you found what you wanted, the things that you wanted and the sort of the goals or boundaries for the, the future for yourself. And that, that takes you to Alaska, which then puts you, you know, on a firm path and back in school, you finish that. Now you find yourself in Anchorage doing, doing work that, you know, you really believe in and feel strongly about. Yep. So tell me, tell me what the, what the future holds. It sounds like you're going to dive back into seasonal work within the frame of what you're doing now. So tell me a bit about that. I, th I think uh, the future is definitely uncertain right now, you know, for, for several glaring reasons in the last couple months and weeks, but in general, ideally this, this residential treatment program that I work for, is uh, going to continue to pursue developing a program for these Alaska Native teens to have a uh, culturally informed uh, intervention where they play outside, basically, where they get connected with the land that their ancestors have been connected with for 12,000 years. And uh, it's, a, it's a really exciting project, and I'm really excited to be working on it. I think, you know, going back to what I was saying about figuring out what I was interested in doing through trial and error, there was always a job that I'd take where it would help me whittle down my perspective a little more. So when I took the job at the Wilderness Therapy Program in Hawaii, this program was, it was therapeutic. It was for young adults and adolescents, and it was an amazing intentional program, and anybody could benefit from this program. However, it, it wasn't covered by most insurance plans and so it was out of pocket and it came out to like nearly six hundred dollars a day with a two or three month minimum stay so these are like ivy league college level tuitions that families are paying uh just to get their kid some mental health treatment uh through wilderness therapy 
And I think that's reflective of a lot of the wilderness therapy industry at its current state. These programs are for affluent families and they're not accessible to inner city youth or uh, low socioeconomic status families. That's pretty unfortunate because it's a pretty powerful intervention, pretty meaningful uh, experience that more people should have access to. So the prospect of starting a wilderness therapy program was exciting to me and was what got me into social work and therapy. And now what's even more exciting is the prospect of creating a wilderness therapy program that's oriented towards folks that otherwise would not receive these services for lack of access. So this would be a wilderness therapy program that's covered under Indian Health Services and Medicaid and uh, other, other grant-funded and federal and state-funded programs that allow Alaska Natives to access these resources and these wonderful experiences. So I'm particularly excited about what the future holds with regards to wilderness therapy. Also, just wilderness therapy in Alaska. Alaska's huge. It's got the most wilderness in the United States, and there's only maybe one or two wilderness therapy programs. So the resource is wilderness, and that's available. And the client base is available because there's a lot of social issues in Alaska. There's a huge uh, Alaska Native population. There's a lot of substance use, domestic violence, uh, high rates of mental illness. There's a lot of opportunity to, to provide these culturally relevant programs to folks out here. So it's, it's something that I'm really looking forward to and really excited about. Yeah, it sounds like an incredible idea, an opportunity to help those people enjoy and also get into sort of the therapy that people that can afford it have found super helpful. What is the what is the framework for creating a program like that look like uh, financially? I mean, since it costs, you know, like you said, an Ivy League tuition amount, what would what would sort of either be on the front side or backside the the financial part of that? Yeah, it's a it's a good question and it's a complicated answer. Um, on the financial end of it, I'm very fortunate in that I work for a major healthcare corporation in Alaska. Alaska has more than a dozen native corporations is what they're called. They don't do the reservation system here for Native Americans. Instead of a reservation, there's a corporation. It's essentially each community, larger scale community of Alaska natives is a tribal entity, but also a financial entity. And they're funded by the federal government and by Indian healthcare services and uh, on a state level also. So these are native corporations that own the rights to the lands that they're on, the mineral rights and the resource rights. So for example, in the Aleutian Islands, the native corporation down there has a huge amount of money because they own the rights to the fisheries all around the Aleutian Islands. And that fishery is what supplies fish to basically the whole globe in terms of salmon, halibut, uh, certain kinds of cod fish. That's where, you, that's where the world gets it from. So it's, it's a, it's a resource rich area and all of that resource money is then distributed into the community in various ways through 
things like dividends, but it's also distributed into the community by paying back into these healthcare corporations. So every major Alaskan community has a major Alaskan healthcare corporation tied to it. And these healthcare corporations are very well funded for the most part. So these are uber wealthy hospital systems, basically. And I'm very fortunate in that I work for one of these uber wealthy hospital systems. It's a, a cutting edge uh, corporation. It's basically the Google of healthcare in Alaska. And they, got, uh, they have funding to experiment with how to provide better, more informed services to their, to their clients. So financially lucky for me, instead of having to start a wilderness therapy program for marginalized or low socio socioeconomic folks uh, from scratch, I don't have to start it from scratch. I'm working for a very wealthy organization that is thus far supportive in helping this program to get up and running because the corporation I work for is run by Alaska natives and uh, the CEO is an Alaska native. She cares deeply about the community and is aware that on a cultural level, the land is an important aspect of the community and the culture. The stars kind of just aligned in a very, uh, in a very cosmic and fortuitous way where I ended up working for this employer that basically shares the same values and goals as me. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. That's great to hear, especially that, you know, it's sort of moving towards preventative care being sort of the goal instead of letting something happen and then treating it on the backside. One of my best friends is actually in Pittsburgh working with a, a healthcare company and they're looking at how sort of preventative measures with food insecurities in certain communities can help. If you help it on the front side, how much more money you'll save and not have to spend on the backside, as well as not you know, having those people go through the difficult things that happen to get to that backside. And it's, it's great to hear that in multiple areas of healthcare, that this is sort of the movement or, you know, this is the direction we're starting to look. Yeah. I think you raise a good point in food security, in the physical healthcare system, the medical system, housing services, uh, in a lot of these areas, including mental health, we're seeing that preventative goes a long way. Even in disaster response, the research shows that if you take preventative measures and disaster preparedness, it'll save you about six times the amount of paying for disaster response. So I can either prepare my community for a hurricane and have us all ready for it, or I can pay six times as much to deal with the aftermath of cleaning up without having been prepared for it. And it's the same in you know, health and food security and in mental health. Prevention, it goes a long way. But I think uh, on, uh, along the same line, a lot of communities and individuals in Alaska are experiencing social issues that ideally down the road will be preventative, but for now uh, people are living with things like navigating a transition from you know a hunter-gatherer lifestyle for the last dozen millennia to a capitalist colonized system in the last hundred years uh, and that tr transition has been very abrupt for the folks out here and i think that they're just trying to navigate what treatment options are available to them and what will make a meaningful impact on their mental wellness and overall wellness from from the 
the research we're gathering uh, in designing this program, uh, a lot of that mental wellness for Alaska Natives would be best provided if it's connected to their cultural values, which includes things like being outside, hunting, fishing, being connected to the land. Yeah, any level of communication and understanding there is a vast improvement from historically how that's gone. Like you said, there's a reservation near Ketchikan where I've spent a lot of time and you do see varying levels of, maybe the word's not success, but how people on the reservation have have become a part of that sort of capitalist colonialism and, and seeing the, the town, how it's, how it's gone through it. And yeah, I think what you're saying and bringing their voices into the, the transition and also allowing for more communication and providing this service of different therapy options to them would be just incredibly helpful. Yeah. That's the dream. It's a good dream. Love it. You've been New Mexico, you spent some time, Alaska, and a few other places. When you've been sort of traveling or finding a new place, you talked about the Sandia Mountains a little bit, but what are some of your favorite spots in the world that you've been to that show sort of, it's what it sounds like you're pretty passionate about, like the beauty of the earth and the environment? Uh, Great question. Like I mentioned, I've been very fortunate and privileged and where I've been able to go, which also included studying abroad twice in my life. So when I was in high school, I spent a semester at a boarding school in Israel. And uh, that was a very powerful experience for me just because I was, I was young and I was so far away from home. And it, it made me realize uh, how refreshing and exciting and inspiring it is to meet people from new cultures and see new places. And it kind of lit the the spark in me to travel. And so when I was in college, I was in college in Pittsburgh, but I spent a year or a a semester abroad in New Zealand, which was just a profoundly wonderful wilderness experience. That place is just pristine wilderness from the northern tip to the southern tip. And uh, the people are the nicest people in the world. I've never met such friendly people. So New Zealand has a special place in my heart. There are also, like, there are no natural predators in New Zealand. So you can go camping or hiking anywhere, and there's just nothing to worry about, <laughs> which is it's such a, it's such a treat, uh, especially now that I'm living here in Alaska, and there are real predators. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I got charged by a moose on a hike the other day, and it was a pretty tense couple of minutes. So yeah, New Zealand is very special to me. Israel is very special to me. Taos, New Mexico is one of the prettier places I've been. It's the southern tip of the Rocky Mountains. Uh, It pretty much fizzles out in Taos, and it's just a gorgeous area. Very, very nice people. I'm here in Alaska because Alaska is amazing. It's it's a really special place to me, and uh, there's no landscape quite like it uh, in terms of like access to glaciers and just endless rivers and huge, vast landscapes and huge mountain ranges. Uh, Alaska is the most special place right now. I think I'm in the right place because the access to wilderness and the opportunities are just endless. And I have a big community of seasonal workers out here, uh, especially in Seward, Alaska. Wonderful, wonderful people who 
keep coming up here because it's it's just so pretty. What is a lesson that you learned growing up in Philadelphia that helps you or propels you along in your in your life now? Hmm. That's a great question. I think I grew up. I was raised Jewish. I grew up Jewish and uh, had like the Jewish values instilled in me. One of those values is uh, it, it roughly translates from Hebrew to repair the world. The general idea of it is do what you can to make the world a more manageable, peaceful, and navigable place for everybody. And I think that was important for me to have as a value when I was traveling seasonally or when I was exploring new places. It helped me to be less of a tourist and more interested in listening to different people and different cultures and hearing their experiences and and seeing how I could interact within their cultures or how I could uh, help support the communities I was in when I was in them. So this this value of repairing the world kind of helped guide me in not taking too passive uh, or pleasurable a role in my travels. There was always pleasure, but balanced with intentionality about who am I representing? Am I helping or hurting when I come to these communities? And uh, how am I participating in various tourism systems or how am I helping? <laughs> is, is a question that I ask myself often. Am I helping? And if so, how am I helping? If I'm not helping, am I harming? And uh, if so, how? And just kind of exploring that and, and maintaining an intentionality when I travel, I think has been helpful for me, both to make friends and connections in the places that I've visited, but also to have a more rich and meaningful experience in these places. It's not just some pretty place that I'm visiting. It's some pretty place that I want to leave better than how I found it, or at least be a part of the process of maintaining its wonderfulness. Yeah, I think that mindfulness and having intentionality are such great traits. And I, I think you, it's really easy to see the people that have that and practice that when you meet them traveling or you know, in, in a new place. And it's, it's, it's a thing that definitely uh, brings out respect. And I think preaching that message and, you know, talking about it is, is a great thing to do because it just so much different hanging out with people that think that way than, you know, occasionally, as you know, on a, a, as a tour guide, sometimes you'll get one of those families that they've never really had to talk about it or think about it that way. And it's just a very different vibe. I don't know, sort of, transactional rather than sort of in awe of the the environment that they get to enjoy and i think those were the moments that i was i was living for when i was doing that you know the sea kayaking work in seward alaska it was it was a tourism industry it's a profit-based industry so it kind of in some ways went counter to the work that i was intending to do it was a for-profit world where people could afford to take these trips and get on these kayaks but at the same time, you know, if I got that kind of family where they, it, it was obvious that they had never really thought about the reality of a receding glacier before, or never really felt connected to a humpback whale because they'd never been close to one in person. Uh, those kinds of like aha moments where uh, these families or tourists or visitors would, would acknowledge or 
become aware of their interconnectedness to the world and to the environment, those, those moments really, uh, really made it worthwhile because uh, the money didn't always make it worthwhile. And uh, other than my own personal enjoyment of kayaking in pretty places, uh, this was like a major reward for me uh, in that line of work. People really having a, a life-changing experience. Of course, there were lots of families that went the other way who were bickering in the kayaks or just having a tough time with travel. I think it's generally stressful to travel for families. And some folks just couldn't manage their expectations. They wanted to see some kind of wildlife that they did not get to see and they were disappointed. But for the most part, I really enjoyed the aspect of the job where there would be this look of awe or novelty on a kid's face because he saw his first halibut or he saw his first bald eagle. It was very powerful. So for maybe a young person or someone just getting their start out in the world, I'm sure you sort of evangelize for a seasonal lifestyle. What are some of the words of advice or sort of like a, a map or a suggestion of what, what they could get into, sort of what to look for and you know, how you think about it overall? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends what your intentions are. There's a lot of different ways to be a dirtbag. And I've known a lot of people do it in a lot of really cool and interesting and unique ways. One of the most appealing to me that I never really did was the snowbird thing, where you uh, work seasonally in the summer in Alaska as a kayak guide. And then in the winter, you go down to Aspen, Colorado and work as a snowboard guide. And that way you can maintain year round employment. I think that's a complication for a lot of seasonal workers is that not every season is covered with work. So it depends on your skill set and what you're interested in doing. But for folks that want year-round seasonal work, I'd say consider South America, consider New Zealand, consider what activities are your strengths. Because if you are a good kayaker, then you can kayak in the summer in Alaska, and then you can go to the Southern Hemisphere for the winter where it's still summer, and you can kayak in the summer again in New Zealand. Um, so there, there are ways to manage it, I think, that are really cool, depending on how you do it. For me, I, I really, my focus was I wanted to play outside. I wanted an outdoor seasonal job with a focus on like outdoor extreme sports or out, outdoor activities like hiking and uh, wilderness therapy and stuff like that. So for me, the most important thing was to go to Knowles to get the wilderness first responder certification through the national outdoor leadership school. That was a real game changer for me. And that's advice I would pass along to anybody that wants to play outside safely to get this certification. That way you'll be desired in the job market. You can get any number of jobs through Knowles. It's also just a wonderful educator and they have a lot of good tips and tricks for being a decent person or leader anyway. So yeah, that's, that's my number one push, I think, in terms of advice for seasonal, seasonal workers. If you're looking to enjoy the outdoors, uh, start with some kind of certification or training through Knowles. They'll really help introduce the field. Yeah, that's great advice. So I, th I think that's all I had. Is there anything uh, that you wanted to get to that we didn't touch on there? Well, uh, I think it's appropriate this week, given you know the protests occurring around the United States, to just, I've, I've already addressed my privilege in this podcast, but I think it's important to address that there might be 
decent amount of privilege in the industry, in the seasonal work industry. People who have the opportunity to travel this way, it's not everybody. It's, it's folks that can afford it uh, one way or another in terms of time or money or even just like having the thought to take this chance. I think it's, it's, a, it's a privileged industry and I'd, I'd love to see more people, more seasonal workers trying to find ways to include more people of color in the field. I gotta say in, in the couple of years that I've been working as a guide or a seasonal worker, I, I haven't seen a lot of people of color. It's, it's mostly van lifers. It's, it's a, a pretty niche group of white travelers. I think it's just important to acknowledge that, that people of color probably want to enjoy these places and these, these gigs and these opportunities as well. It's for us to ask ourselves, how, how can we support people of color getting more involved in this industry? What barriers are keeping them from participating in this industry? Aside from agricultural migrant workers, I think wilderness guides and tourism guides are predominantly white. So I think it's just worth putting that out there, given the state of the, the country this week, acknowledging privilege where it is, exploring ways moving forward to be more inclusive. Yeah, I think, and correct me if, if your views are otherwise, but I think in the I agree that there's not a lot of representation in tour guides and sort of that side of seasonal work. But I think the seasonal industry itself is one of the few that has a sort of a setup where the opinions and the, the voices in the industry aren't directly against people of color. It's, I think the systematic part of it is, is the big challenge. You know, there's not sort of like a, a funnel or a, a push from their communities or their upbringing that brings them into our, or sort of the seasonal industry for the most part. And I think the, the best way to combat that and to, to get them involved is bringing awareness of it to everyone who could possibly benefit from it and just getting the word out that, you know, seasonal life and the seasonal industry is a viable option and anyone can do it and being as accepting and inclusive and broadcasting sort of that message out there because I don't, I don't think it's a, you know, opinion or personal cause. I think it is more systematic and the result of, you know, just the way that people get divvied into certain certain industries or certain jobs or certain lifestyles. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. It's a systemic issue. I don't I don't believe that overall in the seasonal industry there is a disproportionate amount of overt racism occurring. I think there's there's systemic oppressive systems at work. Uh, that bar people of color from having access to these opportunities or even knowing about these opportunities and, and having ways to, to safely get themselves to these opportunities. If it's a socioeconomic factor, then it's going to be harder for somebody to leave Harlem and leave their life there and go try this new thing and see how it goes and kind of roll the dice in that way. There, there's just fewer, there's less flexibility financially for lower socioeconomic people. 
Yeah, it's it's an interesting topic. I think there are ways that we can work to promote getting more people of color into the industry. And I think it's, uh, yeah, on a, on a bigger picture level, on a macro level, it's important to, it's important for us to examine, okay, where are people of color in this industry and why? So yeah, it's, it's something that I've been thinking a lot about lately. And it's something that I've noticed while working in these, these spaces is that these are, these are white spaces for the most part. And yeah, like you're saying, there's there's no reason that they have to be. I don't think anybody's forcing them to be, but there are systems at play that are perpetuating the whiteness of the space. Right. And I I know Coolworks is doing some work here. I talked to Kelsey, one of the owners, not too long ago about there's programs that are in in each state, I believe, that are sort of bringing the idea of the seasonal lifestyle to communities of color and sort of bringing that the possibility there and not only that but also providing them the routes and the the help that if necessary to to get into that so i think i think even the seasonal industry is uh turning that corner and you know making making movement in the right direction so that's good news yeah i think uh Knowles is also I know that for, for a long time, Knowles has offered scholarship opportunities to folks because those courses, the Wilderness First Responder course or any Knowles course, they're super valuable to the field and to opportunities, but they're also, they're not cheap. They're very expensive. So uh, I know that they've offered scholarships and grants for a long time to marginalized folks, uh, lower socioeconomic folks or folks of color. Uh, and on top of that, I think they're now offering specifically like women-led expeditions and people of color-led expeditions. They're also kind of exploring, how can we invite more people of color in? How can we make this more accessible and create more equity within the field, which is commendable. And it sounds like Coolworks is doing it too. That's so cool. I'm excited to see where it goes. Well, Josh, I want to thank you so much for you know talking to me today, giving me your time. And uh, it was great listening to your story and hearing a bit about your experience thanks joey thanks for having me yeah that's it that's the episode the seasonals are kelly mogg ryan dininger me joey ravinsky the theme song by ryan dininger joe williams lewis leva chappie thomas hamilton follow us on instagram at the seasonals underscore like us on facebook listen to our next episode that's it we're out yeah.